course, as you probably know, 15 years ago today, uh, terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers, uh, the Pentagon, and, uh, and another flight heading to D.C. where we started fighting back that went down. I wanted uh, Jay, we have been talking, and uh, we all remember where we were uh, maybe when we saw that happening, uh, that, I think it was Tuesday morning, and uh, Jay was on the East Coast then in Boston. T- tell us about how you experienced that. Well, I mean, we all remember where we were that day. Um, I was working in a restaurant. I know, surprising that a musician would be working in a restaurant. Um, <laughs> I'd been in Boston for about a year just pursuing uh, music as a career, and um, so I was regular morning making my breakfast at the at the restaurant that I was working in and for news of the first plane came so I grabbed my food and went out to where there were TVs and started eating my breakfast and then obviously we saw the second plane hit and it was, uh, it was a very short period of time after that that they closed the restaurant and they pretty much shut down the whole city and uh, so I started to go home um, and uh, what makes this unique is that so I went to, I drove I rode the subway every day. I rode the subway to work, back home from work. Now, subway rides in Boston are probably like subway rides in any major city, except Boston is overly rude. Um, (laughs) So normally a a subway ride just consists of people just doing their own thing, not talking to one another, listening to headphones, um, you know, eating the microwaved fish that they brought from home. Didn't go over well in first service either. No subway riders here. Somebody's always eating stinky food in the subway. Um, but what made it different was that the the subway car was it was it was just buzzing and it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a feeling of yes there was tragedy in the air, but there was this goodwill in the air. People were speaking to each other. People that wouldn't necessarily speak. And there was every race every religion, every, everything you can think of on this subway car. And people were, as people would exit, it was uh, be safe and, and have a great day, take care you know, of your family, and especially God bless everybody. God bless. God bless you. you know, even people that you wouldn't think would have any faith whatsoever. Um, and it's just uh, you know, people would go home and dig out their American flags that were in the basement. And if they didn't have a flagpole, they'd hang it up in their window or hang it up in their car or whatever. And, it just uh, struck me as it, it took that for people to connect, it took that for people to be, and it to be patriotic for our country. Um, and uh, so that was, and we played a show uh, a month later in Manhattan, and the whole town stunk. Um, it was a, a very wretched smell, um, but it was, uh, you know, a terrible, a terrible thing that united a lot of people. Yeah. I appreciate that. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray together uh, for our country. Uh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for our country. We thank you uh, for the freedom that we have. And Lord, we know that that doesn't come free. Somebody pays a price. And God, we thank you that our country does have freedom. Uh, freedom that our founders gave to us and freedom that people have, have fought and died Uh, to keep, Lord, freedom that we can spread your name. Lord, it's no accident that it's a a nation founded on Christian principles that has this kind of freedom. Lord, we understand we don't see that in 
Muslim-dominated countries, and Lord, we thank you for that because we have nothing to fear from the free exchange of ideas. God, we pray that you bless our country, and Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our new leaders as a result of the election that's coming up uh, this year, and Lord, that our whole country would tend to turn back toward you uh, one way or the other, even if it takes hardship to do that. God, thanks for loving us. And thank you most of all for showing us how to love through your son, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Great country. Um, today's outdoor baptism. And so what that means is after our third service, our next service, uh, we're gonna head out to White Star Park in Gibsonburg. As you do that, I, I just wanna caution you, avoid the city of Gibsonburg because they're having kind of a 9-11 celebration and they're expecting a lot of people. So we've got directions to get out there, but basically that you can pick up at the information table. But basically, if you just head, head west on State Street 20 and where the bypass, where they come together on the west side of town, right after that, there's an intersection. That's Four Mile House Road. If you hang a left there and then your first right is 65, that will take you right to White Star Park. And you'll probably be following a caravan of cars from Grace. So just try that. We're going to have hot dogs out there, just time of celebration. Uh, we're really pumped about that. And then this Saturday, why don't you make it where, I kind of mentioned it last time, is the uh, Heartbeat Hope Medical 5K run walk thing. And I got to tell you, I've been training. I had, uh, it, it's the cookie run. So I'm, I'm not much of a runner, but I'm like an elite cookie eater. <laughs> and I had chocolate chip cookies last night. I had chocolate chip cookies for lunch yesterday. I've been in strict training. Most of my training is after lunch. But uh, I've been working on that. And I don't know if you know this, but there were a few years of my life that I worked in a bakery. Actually, in summers, worked construction in the morning full time. And then in the evening, seven days a week, I'd go in and close this bakery. I ate chocolate chip cookies every single day for years. <laughs> seven days a week. No, I'm not kidding. Every day. I am like a world-class cookie eater. I mean, you got Cookie Monster Kevin. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're right up there. And I'm feeling really good about this run. Uh, really good, because apparently, I've never been to one, but apparently as you run, every cookie you eat takes 30 seconds off your time. I think I'm a world-class competitor here. I'm very excited about it. It's, it's in Tiffin. You know, hey, we need to turn out. We, we got a lot of people in our church that are involved in Hope Eat. Uh, heartbeat, Hope Medical, and uh, they're on the front line. You talk about social justice. How about Heartbeat and Hope Medical standing up for those who have no voices, the most vulnerable in our, in our country, in our society, uh, the pre-born. And uh, that's what this is all about. It's a fundraiser, uh, 30, 35 bucks to sign up. I signed up. Hope you guys do too. Tony is in here. I saw Tony and John walk in. She probably, Tony, John, where are you guys at? I saw, her, I saw him walk in. Are they? Way back. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I thought you walked down this way. Sorry. Uh, so if you have any questions, Tony, wave to us. You can ask her, but you probably will never find her. So it might be best to go to the website. It's friendsofheartbeat.org, friendsofheartbeat.org. Get signed up that Saturday morning in Tiffin around 8 o'clock. And I'm feeling, if this becomes an Olympic sport, I think I can be a competitor. 
I mean, Cookie Monster, I don't even think Cookie Monster has legs. I mean, I got this. I, I think I got this. So I, anyway, so just think about that. Uh, we'd love a great turnout from our church. Uh, exciting stuff. But anyway, we're in a series called No Spin, Just Jesus. It's ticking a lot of people off and making a lot of people nervous because we're talking about how Jesus interacted with the politics of his day, and we're learning from that and sort of how we should apply that. So that's just what we do here at Grace. We study scripture and we apply it to our lives. Now, what's happening this time is it's a little different in that we're, we're going to do what the disciples do. Normally, we'll look at a passage of scripture, we apply it to our lives. That's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. But this time, we're going to look at scripture and see how the disciples who spent the most time with Jesus applied Jesus' teaching to their lives, because that's recorded for us by the historian Luke through the book of Acts. So we're excited about doing that. Now, recap of the last two weeks. When we kicked off the series, we talked about the, the classic, extremely political question that was asked Jesus the last week before the crucifixion. And we all have heard about that, where they, they're trying to trap him, and they ask him a question, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They weren't just talking about any taxes. They were talking about a specific tax, a poll tax, a head tax. They had to do with the census. And, and this was a very politically controversial tax in Jerusalem because 25 years earlier, when they instituted this tax, there was a revolt by, by kind of an obscure guy named Judas the Galilean or Judas of Galilee, and he led a revolt against Rome because of this exact tax. Now, Jesus is in the temple. People are saying that he's the Messiah. They expect, their expectation of the Messiah, that he would overthrow, politically overthrow Rome. And so they ask him this question, and it's a no-win question. No matter how, they want a yes or a no. They even say that, yes or no. Do we pay the tax or don't we? And Jesus gives a genius answer. And in his answer, he actually teaches us three things. Actually, three, re three common responses to politics that Jesus didn't do, that Jesus rejected, and so should we. Remember he said, give, show me a coin. It was a denarius, first century silver coin worth about a day's wage, with the image of Caesar Tiberius and the inscription. And Jesus says, with the inscription, it says, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then remember the answer? Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it. Taxes, the money. Give to God what has God's image on it. Give to God what's God's and what is that? Us, made in the image of God. So he gives us this genius answer that rejects these three common responses to politics then and today. First of all, rejects political simplicity they say, give us a yes or no answer. Jesus refuses to give them a yes or no answer. He gives them a very political answer. Secondly, we should reject political apathy. Jesus could have opted out of the question. He could have dodged the question like most politicians do today, but he didn't. He engaged politically, and he gave them a political answer. And then third, we should reject political supremacy because that's what his answer was all about. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. 
He basically says this. You can give to Caesar some of what he wants, but don't you dare give to Caesar all of what he wants because what he, all of what he wants is your first allegiance is to him as God. Give him taxes, but give him some, but don't give him all. That's what Jesus did. Then next week, last week, we talked about how a little further in the week they tried to trip him up again by asking him a very hot-button question about the law. They had 613 laws from the Old Testament. They're keeping these laws, and they're saying, Jesus, which, we can't keep all 613. It's not working. Which law is the most important? No doubt when they're asking him that, they're thinking that he's going to answer with one of the Ten Commandments, the top ten, you know, by the finger of God, and they're getting ready for that, and, but he doesn't. He kind of throws them a curveball, and remember, he says, Love God with all your heart, heart, soul, strength, might. Love God with everything you have. And he kind of turned the law upside down when he said that. Because before that, in any religion in all the world, basically, people obey the rules of the religion, the laws of the religion for two reasons. One, because of fear, because if you don't do what God says, then you're in trouble and something bad's going to happen to you. Or sometimes because of pride. Oh, I do all this and I'm way better than those people. And Jesus says, no, that's not the motivation. One motivation, and that is love for God. The reason we obey is because we love God first. Not fear, not pride. Because we love God back. And so we're motivated to obedience, totally out of love. And then Jesus throws in a kicker and says, hey, and number two, love people. Love God, love people whole different motivation for the entire law. Earth-shattering, big-time stuff. And uh, so now, we're going to look at how the disciples, who were with Jesus the most, how they applied his teaching, because they were there and they got it firsthand. So here, and, and here's what we're going to find out. We're going to find out that we as believers can stand against political opposition confidently if we do two things keep God first that's what Jesus keeps saying both of his answers had that and pray to God for boldness and that's what we're going to see so here we are we're, we're going to start in Acts chapter 4 but I'll give you a little context in Acts chapter 3 first thing you got to know the first church in Jerusalem God has grown that into a mega church Way bigger than grace. Thousands and thousands of people start becoming followers of Christ in Jerusalem and a part of that church and the disciples. And so the disciples are teaching and preaching. The crucified Christ, Christ is gone now. He's been crucified, resurrected, and now ascended to heaven, and the church is launched. So it's just a few months later, thousands of people have become believers in Jerusalem. But that's not with political, without political opposition. So here, here's what happens. Well, here's kind of what happens in Acts 3, and we'll get to Acts 4. Peter and John are going to the temple to teach like they do almost every day. And as they go to the temple, they walk by a beggar by one of the temple gates who has never walked since birth. He's never walked. He's been there for decades that's how he supports himself, by begging. He does it at the temple because then people will be reminded that God wants us to help the most vulnerable in our society. And so 
he's there, and Peter and John walk by. He's begging for alms. Peter and John have no cash, and basically Peter stops. He says, hey, paraphrasing, have no cash, don't have anything on me, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Peter grabs the guy by the hand, lifts him to his feet, and the guy all of a sudden walks for the first time in his life. And not only that, he's now walking with Peter and John on into the temple, and he's jumping around, and he's praising God. I mean, he is pumped. He's happy. He's excited. This, now, this is a guy who's been there for decades. So this, when he's in the temple jumping around, they all recognize, everybody that used that gate, recognizes this guy, and it causes this huge stir, and the crowds are amazed, and they kind of start pressing in to this guy, John, and Peter. And then Peter, as the crowds, he's like, hey, why are you amazed? And then he starts preaching. And ba basically, the way the preaching goes is he's basically saying, hey, first century Judaism had an expectation of, of the Messiah to come, but they had no expectation of a Messiah who would suffer, just one that would come as king and lead their country. And so, very political. And so, they, and so Jesus... Peter is telling them, hey, Jesus the Messiah was killed, and you did that in ignorance, but God has a plan. God intended for that to happen, and so what you did in ignorance, God did for good. And by the way, God planned this all along, and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Bible that they had, also proclaimed that the Messiah would suffer. And so basically saying, God's in control, repent and turn to God. You crucified him in ignorance, repent. Ignorance is still no excuse, they're still culpable. Repent and turn to God. And he's telling them, hey, it's the gospel message, the fact that we're all sinners, every one of us, every human being except for Jesus. We've all violated God's law, his standard of righteousness. But because God loves us, he made a way. That's what the Messiah was about. That's what the whole Old Testament was pointing to, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah who would be the perfect sacrifice, unlike the sacrificial system that was just temporary in nature. You had to do it every day, every year. You had to slaughter things. It taught people the seriousness of sin, that innocent blood would have to be shed, a goat, uh, a, a bull. You know, and it so taught people the seriousness of sin. And then Jesus came to be the once-for-all perfect sacrifice. That's why we don't have a sacrificial system now. And, place your, and, and you respond, you you begin, you're right by God, not by following the law, but putting your trust in Christ. So all this is happening. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. I'm going to pick this up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard. So you get the picture. Peter's been preaching. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. And being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Eternal life is what they're talking about. And they laid their hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Talking about the church. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem... 
and Ananias the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? All right, this now is the Sanhedrin. This is a, a political supreme court of the country. We know they sat in a semicircle, 70 plus people. They bring Peter and John in to, to stand in the center of this semicircle, and then they start questioning them. And basically, here's the question Who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to teach what you're teaching and do what you've done? Now, They've got a little bit of a problem here because whether we don't know if they brought him in or John and Peter brought him in, but the guy who's been healed comes in with them. Maybe at the court's insistence, we don't know. And so they're standing there sort of being lectured by the Sanhedrin, but standing right next to Peter and John is this man who was crippled for decades, who is now standing there. And, and many of them recognize this guy because they've seen him every day for decades. And so they realize there's really nothing that they can charge them with. And so they don't like what they're doing, but they can't really bring a charge against them. So basically, uh, they let that go. And, uh, and then, but before they let them go, they put political pressure on them. They basically say, and here, here's what they did. This is the political move. There were no charges. They, they couldn't charge John and Peter with anything. So they realize they got to fix that. So before they release them, because they have no charges to hold them, they make a pronouncement and they say, you can know, by the power of the Sanhedrin, by the power of the Supreme Court, you can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. So, and what they do when they do that, they make a new law from the bench, still happens today, not supposed to, but they make a new law from the bench that they know now next time if we have to rearrest these guys again, now they will have violated a law because we just made a law. And so that's kind of what's happening as they arrest Peter and John. But I want you to notice, while they're questioning him, here's, here's, and, and Peter and John respond, and they're pretty bold. Verse 13 says, and now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, which is, this is the Sanhedrin is what it is in the Greek, they began to confer with one another. All right? And so, then they bring them back in and they do this. It's in verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So here's what happens. The church is growing. This is happening. Uh, 
and there's this conflict. By the way, this word for miracle is really sign. It's a sign. The literal translation of that, it's sign. It's saying, hey, this happened so people would see as a sign. So people, Whoa, something's up. God's doing something here. It was a sign to the people, and many of them responded. We don't have signs like that now. And it was also a sign to the Sanhedrin, and, and they didn't respond. Even though they couldn't deny it and didn't even refute it, they didn't even argue against it, they didn't respond. So that's kind of what's happening now. But that doesn't stop, this sign doesn't stop the increasing opposition. But here's what we learn. It's what I said earlier. We as believers can face political opposition and persecution with confidence if we do two things, keep God first and pray for boldness. That's exactly what the disciples did in the first church in Jerusalem. And this is exactly this keep, so keep God first is first thing. It's exactly what Jesus was teaching. Give Caesar, Caesar, Caesar's, give God what's God's. That's your first allegiance. Same thing when they ask him about the commandment, God, love God first. When this happens, it's the first teaching of limited government in history, right here, public teaching of limited government. Jesus and then the disciples are saying, hey, there is an authority over the king. Before this, the king said it. The king either said, I'm a god, or the gods picked me, so shut up. I mean, that's just how it went. All of a sudden now, Jesus and the disciples are saying, there is an authority higher than kings, God. And so we see this kind of play out as they're interacting, and they keep God first by saying, hey, you be the judge. Do I follow God or follow you? We're seeing the same thing what the Sanhedrin did kind of like today. We have separation of powers, three branches of government to check and balance each other. Congress legislates the laws, they make up the laws, and they're elected by the people. And then the court upholds the laws fairly when there's an issue. If you haven't noticed, things have gotten out of balance because we have something in our country today called judicial activism, which means without there being any laws on the books, judges, particularly our Supreme Court, they make law out of whole cloth. They just come up with a law or a right that they, they say they see somewhere in the Constitution, but that's not what the Constitution meant, and that's not what it says. And they create a law. Laws are not supposed to be created that way in our country. And when they do that, then, they're legislating from the bench, which is a violation of a whole separation of powers and, and something that we should pay attention to as we are involved in politics. Anyway, I'll get off my hobby horse there, but anyway... So we face political pressure by keeping God first, and then secondly, by asking God for boldness during political oppression. Look at verse 27. Peter and John are then released. They have no charges. First thing they do is they go get together with their church family in Jerusalem, and then they start praying. And then here's a portion of their prayer beginning in verse 27 that I want to point out. So this is their prayer to God as they come together as a church family. For truly, and they're talking to God, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He's basically covering everybody there. They're all against your son, God, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then they crucified Jesus, but God, you knew about that already. You allowed that to happen. You knew it was going to happen. That's what he's saying. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, or that could be translated with all boldness. Now notice something. This is what's foreign to us today. The church is being persecuted. We're going to see that in the very next thing that happens. And, and, and if we would go through that, typically our response when we pray to God is, God, don't let them do this to me. God, help me. God, get me out of this. God, change their minds. God, deliver me. They don't pray any of that. Why do they pray? God, give me boldness to keep doing what I know I should be doing. That's what they pray for, boldness. Keep God first and pray to God for boldness. He answered the prayer then, and he'll answer that prayer today. In the face of increasing political pressure and the threats, they're just asking God for boldness. And so they continue to teach. The political opposition increases. Why? Why so much political opposition? Because the powers that be, represented by the Sadducees, talked a little bit about them, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, their power was vested in the status quo. And when, Jesus, when, when the disciples come along and preach Jesus' message, who a lot of people were identifying as a Messiah, all of a sudden they're worried about kind of a messianic insurgency that's going to topple the balance of power, but they profit, these groups, Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they profit from the status quo because of their shared power structure with Rome. They're cooperating with Rome. They benefit that everything stays the same. So now the pressure gets turned up, political pressure, and the Sanhedrin decides, because the disciples don't stop preaching, that they're going to arrest them again. But this time, they don't just arrest John and Peter, sort of the leaders. They actually arrest all the disciples. So they arrest them all. It's kind of toward evening. So they just put them on ice in jail, and they'll get to the business in the morning. What happens next, this doesn't always happen, but sometimes this happens, we read in Scripture, that God miraculously releases them, and, and then they're instructed to keep preaching, keep teaching the name of Jesus. In the meantime, the next morning, nobody knows that they're released. The next morning, the council reconfirms. Now there's even a larger group there. They're in the semicircle. They're, they're talking about this. And then they call for the prisoners to be brought in. And so they go to get the disciples out of jail. The doors are locked. The guards are still there. But they go in, no disciples. And could you imagine the guy that had to go back and tell the Sanhedrin, uh, we lost them. The prisoners are all gone. And, and so they're, they're kind of mulling that over. Well, were the doors locked? Yeah, the doors are still locked. They're, so they're trying to figure all that out. And then somebody comes in and says, hey, 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 the escaped prisoners? Yeah, I got good news or maybe it's bad news. I don't know. They're next door preaching in the temple. They haven't gone anywhere. They're just right next door preaching. Just what we told them not to do. So then they go. They're sent by the Sanhedrin to re-arrest, to re-re-arrest all the disciples. And they arrest them but back then, you know, they had rough people up when they arrest them. And the Bible is very clear to point us out, point out to us, Luke does, 
that they arrested them without violence. They're kind of being gentle to them. Why? Because the crowd is enjoying their teaching. The crowd, they're on board. And so the guards are going to arrest them, kind of get them to come without violence. And the disciples willingly come back to the Sanhedrin. And then it's the same thing. We told, now there's charges, right? Because they already warned them, don't preach. Now they've broken a law that the Sanhedrin just made the day before. And so they're kind of dealing with that. And, uh, and then verse 27, we'll pick it up there. In, in chapter 5. All right. Chapter 5, verse 27. I'm looking at chapter 4, 27 going, I thought I already read that. All right, yeah, chapter 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the, high, the Supreme Court, the high priest questioned them and saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're saying, you keep saying we're guilty. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then he, he, he starts kind of preaching a little bit. And so Peter tells him kind of what happens. Hey, God was in control. You didn't expect a suffering Messiah, but God did. And it, the prophets told us we just kind of ignored it. And then a very influential man from the council says, because after he's, Peter's done with his little speech, they want to kill him on the spot, done. Because he accused them of killing the Messiah. But there's a very influential man named Gamaliel. We know him because he actually, Paul was one of his disciples before Paul was converted. And he must be extremely influential because he says, hey, let's stop it. Let's, let's send the prisoners out for a minute and talk. Sent the, and they did it. They sent the prisoners out. He talks to them and he's basically, here's what he says. He says, look, you know, years ago, a guy rose up, uh, Theadius, and you know, he, he kind of came along and 400 men followed him, but then they killed him and you know, basically 400 disappeared and no problem. And then he said years ago, another guy showed up and guess what? He mentions by name Judas the Galilean, the guy that we were talking about two weeks ago that you didn't even know was in the Bible. He mentions Judas the Galilean. That guy rose up and he caused a revolt over the tax that we asked Jesus about. But then he was killed, and pretty much that put that revolt down. So then Gamaliel says something very interesting. He says, here's what we should do. We, should, we shouldn't kill these guys. Because if God's not in it, Jesus is dead, this is all going to go away in a matter of time. And then he says, and if God is in it, we're going to find ourselves fighting against God. And so they call him back in. They warned them not to preach in the name again. And so we'll pick it up in verse 40. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. You know, we were, oh, flogged them. This is not a slap on the wrist. This is 39 brutal lashes all the disciples received. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. 
And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, that's the Supreme Court, technically Sanhedrin is the Greek word, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Why'd they, why'd they do that? Because they understood that politics, it's not the hope of the world. Only Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Because the problem with the world is not systems and governments and parties. The problem with the world is the evil that's in every one of our hearts. That we would violate God's righteous commands. And God loves us. But he's also a perfectly just God. So he can't just let the sin go. He can't just wink at sin. He can't just say, ah, that's a, don't worry about it. Like your grandfather might do when you mess something up. He says sin has to be punished. Because God is not only perfectly righteous and has a standard, he's perfectly just and will enforce that standard. Sin has to be punished. But because he loves all of us, every single person, he made a way. The Father made a way by sending his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, who voluntarily allowed himself to be tortured to death as the perfect sacrificial payment for each of our individual sins. And then he invites everyone, equal opportunity, everybody in the world, Every race, every religion, he invites them to come to him. But it's got to be on his terms. And that is one thing. We don't earn our salvation. We cannot keep the law perfectly. None of us can do it. Look at the Ten Commandments. We can't keep them. He says just by faith. And by faith, here's exactly what I mean because we mess this word up. Faith in Jesus means that you believe who Jesus is, the Son of God, and you trust in the fact that his death on the cross 2,000 years ago was sufficient, was enough, was adequate to pay for all of your sins. And so when we have faith in Jesus, that's when we get the forgiveness for our sins. But there's only one name. There's only one way. There's not 20 religions or five religions or two. There's only one true religion. Religions are mutually exclusive. There's only one true religion. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's the most important decision that anyone can ever make. It's your eternal destiny. You have to come to a point in your life where you place your trust in Jesus and nothing else. Not good work, not baptisms, not coming to church, not even grace, none of that. Not being nice to your neighbor. That, none of that saves you. That's law-keeping. Faith in Christ. And so if you haven't made that decision, uh, I want you, we're to move on with our service and, and close up. I just want you to know that's the most important decision you could ever make. If you want to talk to somebody about that, 
all be in, in room one. That's this chunk out of this auditorium right here. There's a big door, two, double doors there, room one. We'll be there to answer any questions you have. If you don't have time for questions or you don't feel comfortable talking about it, it's just kind of out of your comfort zone, kind of private, hey, just say, can you hand me a pamphlet to read on my own time? We'll give you something. Just You don't even have to break stride. Just say, want one of those pamphlets. Thanks, I'm out. That's okay with us. You can do that. That's totally okay. And Christians for 2,000 years, just like what happens today, suffer and die and are martyred to share their faith. And for 2,000 years, people have been giving their lives to share the faith, and so we have the message of Jesus. And it's our responsibility from God to pass this message on to the next generations. And that's what we're all about here at Grace Community Church. And that's why I'm so pumped about Sundays like this, outdoor baptism, where right now we have over 80 people planning to get baptized this afternoon at White Star Park on the beach, outside at the quarry, if you've ever been there. Cool setting, great weather. But it's important for us as a church family to celebrate baptism. And we don't want to just go there because we know, you know, maybe we're related to somebody getting baptized. We go there because we're a church family. We're going to have hot dogs and whatever out there, but we have to celebrate people going public with their faith through believer's baptism like people have been doing for 2,000 years since the time of Christ. Don't miss it. We're going to have a great time of celebration together. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love for us that none of us deserve. That you would allow your son to die for us, for the worst part of us, for our rebellion against you. And God, help us to love you back through obedience. Our obedience doesn't win us salvation, just one thing does faith. We, we get that, God. But we also want to love you back, and, and to do that, we, we try to be obedient, we try to follow you. Because we want to love you, and we want to love others, all others. God, help us to do that. Father, we pray that if there's one person here, and there is, there are people here who have not made this decision, but that you'd, you'd draw them to yourself, not to grace, community, to you, and help them put their faith in you. And God, we thank you for all those that are coming for baptism. Thanks, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. One more thing. Uh, before we close, there may be some of you that you have become believers by putting your faith in Christ, but you've never gone public with baptism. It's not a salvation issue. It's just an obedience issue. If you've never done that and you're kind of right now going, ah, I should have signed up for that. I should have done it. I should have went public. There's still time. Uh, Tim's going to be out. Pastor Tim will be out on the beach, 1230 to 1, uh, before a third service gets out there. If you go meet with him and say, hey, I haven't met with a pastor, I haven't been on the list, but I, I want to get baptized. Uh, he'll, he'll talk to you and, and get you on the list, and we'll, we'll be sure to include you too. Have a great time of celebration. Thank you. You're dismissed.